Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. All right. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. It's nice to see each of you here. I think we were waiting for a video to kind of an intro video to start, but I guess that's not going to happen, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, it's a joy and honor to be here this morning, um, and nice to see each one of you as well. I hope you guys have had a wonderful week. Um, God is good. He has blessed us with so many wonderful things. We just take a few moments to look around and to think God is truly um, blessing each one of us. And I see, and again, I apologize. We apologize on behalf of the church. I see several of you fanning yourself. So yes, it is hot in here. Um, we're having some problems with the air condition, but, you know, in the big scheme of things, that's really not that big of a deal because we have a lot to give thanks uh, to God for. This summer, we um, have been journeying uh, through a series, Summer of Praise, ideas, concepts of, of why we can give God praise. And again, uh, if you look around your life and, and think about all the different things, God is an incredible God. He is awesome and we can continually give him praise for all the things that he does. Even if you've been going through challenges, we can praise God. So I want to just uh, share with you for our time together this morning a message entitled, Pursued. So as we begin, let us bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this day, for this time that we can gather together to worship you. What an incredible privilege it is to, to stand and speak. And I just pray, Lord, that you will just be with each one of us. Your Holy Spirit will come down in this place, in our hearts and minds, and just guide each one of us as we journey together in a closer walk with you today. We thank you and we ask all these things in your heavenly name. Amen. I came across an online forum not too long ago. Uh, there was an individual who, well, the, the online forum basically was, a, it would pose a question, can you share stories about how your parents or your grandparents met or how they fell in love? And it was interesting reading through some of these stories, but one that caught my attention was submitted by Teneferisa21 talks about how her spouse's grandparents met. He was enlisted in the Royal Air Force, the British Air Force, and he was stationed in Singapore. His good friend was dating this lady, and this lady had a sister, and he became interested in this young lady. Well, she was not really that interested in him. He kept asking and pursuing, but she didn't want anything really to do. In fact, she was several years older than he was, and in her words, she said, no, he's just a silly little boy. I'm not interested. Well, interestingly enough, she got a job over in London as a nanny. Well, he went back to London, and because his friend was dating his sister, he still was able to see her from time to time and just interact a little bit, but she still was not interested, but he did not give up. He did not know exactly where she lived. He did know the neighborhood, though. And in his, in his persistence, he went to that neighborhood and began knocking on door after door after door until he found her. And she writes, 
this year, they'll be happily married for 57 years. <laughs> Talk about persistence. Talk about pursuing. I want to ask you a question. How does it make you feel to be pursued? Now, I know that may be a loaded question because we're like, well, it all depends, right? It depends who is pursuing, right? If it's someone you care about, someone that you love, someone that you like, whatever, then it's kind of exciting. But then on the other hand, if it's, if it's someone that you don't know, someone that you're not interested really in, it's, it's a little intimate. It's, it's maybe a little scary or even creepy, right? So then let me ask you this. Do you know that you are being pursued by God? And if you're being pursued by God, when I first say that, what comes to your mind? I mean, for some, you may feel excited. That's exciting. God, is, is he really? And some of you may actually feel uneasy. Why would God be pursuing after me? Almost like, is there something wrong with me? And we may feel a lot of different feelings when we say that God is pursuing after you. But at the same time, I talk about God pursuing after you. I also say this, that there is someone else pursuing after you. Satan is pursuing after you as well. You have two spiritual forces that want you. And I, I, I want us to talk about this because I think this helps us. I should say it's important to understand this concept of pursuing because this shapes our understanding of the spiritual world around us. It shapes our view a lot of who God is and how we view God. And even a lot of the why questions we have, God, why do these things happen in my life? And so today as we dive into this, I want us to kind of put this in the context. I think it's important. We can just talk about this topic, but I think we need to put it in the context of the great controversy. Yes, there is a struggle of good and evil in this world. There's a struggle of good and evil in our lives. So we need to understand that this is a part of it. So first, God is love. Pastor Chris, a couple weeks ago, talked about it so beautifully. God is love. We see this in 1 John, clearly saying that God is love. But when we start looking at some of the other stories and scriptures, he created us in his image. Yes, identifies God's love. He created us with the ability to think. He gave us the freedom to choose. Before sin, when he created Adam and Eve, he walked with them in the garden. He desired companionship. Not because he had to do this, but because he wanted. God is a God of love. And we also see when he created Lucifer, he created him out of love as well. The anointed cherub, the guardian angel, he was perfect. Ezekiel 28, 12 tells us that he was the model of perfection. There was beauty and wisdom in who he was until wickedness was found in him. And then Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, we see that pride starts to rise within him until... It led to his downfall. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to set himself up to be like the God. And in Revelation 12, we see that there was eventually war in heaven that took place over this. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon was cast out. He lost his place and was sent down to this earth. Sin could not exist in heaven. And so see, we have two sides here. We have a God of love and we have a created angel. Uh, uh, an angel that's filled with pride, jealous of God, wanting revenge. 
So the question is, how does a fallen angel get revenge on God? He pursues intensely after those God loves. I work at Collegeville Academy, specifically the elementary and middle school. And it's a joy and honor to work there. And as my week goes on, I, I try to find different times where I can go out with the kids and, and play different things at the middle school or into sports, basketball and, and football and, and, and just kind of mingle with the kids. At the elementary school, well, there's maybe some sports going on, but a lot of the younger kids, they like to just play on the playground. Go down the sides, be pushed on the swing, whatever it is. And so I had some time. I walked outside not knowing what class was out there. And guess what? There's a group of kindergartners out there. So I said, like, great, let me go out and see what's going on. I walked down there, and there were some kindergartners playing. I said, hey, guys, what you doing? Hey, pastor, it was exciting. They're excited to see me. What are you playing? And one of the kids says, I'm a shark. I said, oh, you're a shark. And the other guy said, well, what are you? And the kid said, oh, I'm a lion. Okay, we've got a shark and a lion. You want to play with us? I said, well, how do you play? Well, you see, you run. I just run? Yes, you run. And, and what's going to happen? We're going to chase after you. All right? And so I start running. Now, I'm, I'm faster than most kindergartners, all right? However, as soon as I start running, indeed, I look back and there's a shark and a lion chasing after me. But the other kids who are building dirt castles or swinging on the swings realize that what they're doing is not nearly as fun as chasing after the pastor. So I look back and what started out as two, all of a sudden we have 15 kids, 15 lions and sharks chasing after me as I am running around swings and whatever else. And I, could out, I was escaping them for the most part, but with 15 of them, they pursuing after me, surrounding around me until they were grabbing my legs and pulling me down. I was caught. They pursued me. Lions do that, you know. Those kids are great, by the way. I sometimes scroll on my phone, social media apps or whatever else, and I've come across recently some, some videos of, of lions, actual lions pursuing in, in Africa, pursuing their prey, right? And I've never been on a safari, never been over to Africa, but just seeing these videos, it's intense as they, they creep in the tall grasses, whatever animal it may be, wildebeest, uh, uh, water buffalo, even giraffes jumping on the back of giraffes and biting them and whatever, pursuing whatever animal it is. They don't give up until they have got, caught their prey. What does Peter describe Satan as? 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking or looking for someone to devour. Now, Peter gives us clear instructions. He said, be self-controlled. Be alert. There are spiritual forces around that are pursuing after you. And guess what they're doing? They're not just trying to get you. They're trying to devour you. They're trying to destroy you. And so, friends, be alert. There are things that we cannot see. And Satan, he does not wait for the invitation. He doesn't wait for permission. He's seeking to destroy each one of us. You know, the sad thing is, though, we talk about this and, and we read about it in Scripture, but most of the, our society, most of our country does not even recognize this or realize this. George Barna, a Christian research author, one I've gained a lot of respect for, does a lot of surveys with Christians understanding the current pulse of a lot of things. This was actually written in Faith and Christianity uh, in 2009. So it is quite old. 
but this is what he shares about his research. Most Americans, even those who say they're Christians, have doubts about the intrusion of the supernatural into the natural world. Okay? After surveying them, he says that most Christians have their doubt that really the supernatural, the, the good versus evil, is really that involved in our lives, basically. Hollywood has made evil accessible and tame, making Satan and demons less worrisome than the Bible suggests they really are. It's hard for achievement-driven, self-reliant, independent people to believe that their lives can be impacted by unseen forces. Now at the same time, he says, through sheer force of repetition, many Americans intellectually accept some ideas, such as the fact that you either side with God or Satan, there's no in between. That does not get translated into practice. So there are people who say, yes, there's good, there's evil, but they're like, it really doesn't impact us that much. It really doesn't. That's what most of America believes. And that's a stark contrast of what we read Peter talking about here. The devil prowls around like a lion seeking to destroy us, to devour our lives. And I, I even think about what Jesus said. We're following Jesus. Let's listen to what he says in John 10, 10, when he talks about this shepherd watching his sheep, bringing them into the gate, that there is a thief out there, right? And he says that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan's mission is to destroy our lives. However he can do it, that is what he wants to do. It's real. He is pursuing after each one of us. I want to talk, I want to, I want to share that. But now I want to talk about the good stuff. The stuff that I'm really excited about. Because it's not only that Satan is pursuing after us, guess what? Jesus is pursuing after us as well. Amen? Jesus is pursuing after us as well. And I know sometimes we, we sometimes like, this is kind of, what does that mean? Because usually when we think about someone pursuing Especially with God pursuing after us, we think, how does this work? Because usually we're the ones that are taking the step. Usually we're the ones that are making the choice for him. How does this fit? I mean, we want to change our lives to be, it's us doing that. What, what do you mean God is pursuing after us? And so I want to look at the story of Zacchaeus. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. A story that I know that many of you are probably familiar with. Uh, we've heard it probably, many of us have heard it since a, a young boy. But I believe this story gives us so much insight in understanding the mission and purpose of what God is doing for us. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Now, Zacchaeus, who was he? he he's a tax collector. But not only was he a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. So he's, he's in charge of several of the other tax collectors. And often the Romans would hire Jewish men to do this work as, as they collected taxes. And, and they would, the Romans would require a certain amount. But as we understand it, the, the tax collectors would often charge that amount and more. Charge whatever they felt like they would like to because the Romans were there to support them and back them up as long as the Romans got what they were asking. And so the rest of the Jewish society, they did not like these. These people were 
thieves. They were robbers. They, they were not right with God. They were sinners. This is Zacchaeus, who he was as his profession, who he was as a person. But he also, what was he? He's a, he's a short man, right? And something must have been happening in his heart because he desired to see Jesus. He knew Jesus was coming to town. And so he, he went ahead and he saw the crowd. What do I do? So he goes back. He's, he climbs a tree. A man like this, with a wealth like this, climbing a tree, this is an odd sight. But something must be happening in his heart because he wanted to see Jesus. And we pick up in verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, so Zacchaeus is there in the tree, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Now it's, it's interesting because, you know, those who were wondering if Jesus truly was the Messiah, they looked at this and said, surely this cannot be the Messiah. They were, they were expecting that, that Jesus was, was going to hang around those people who were righteous, those people who were um, spiritual, those people who really were walking right with God. This cannot be the Messiah because he's gone to be with a sinner. Jesus should be shunning those who are doing wrong. But Jesus is there with the sinner. So they begin to mumble and grumble about this. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up. So they've eaten their meal together, and Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor, and I've cheated anybody out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I love this, this passage and, and just thinking about the experience that Zacchaeus must have had with Jesus. He was convicted enough. He wanted to change his ways. He wanted to start living his life for God to make things right. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. But then Jesus says that last verse, an important verse, that I believe in understanding the purpose of why Christ came here to this earth. His mission. What did Jesus say? Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ's mission and purpose was to come and seek, come and to pursue after us, to seek and save each one of us. That was his purpose. That was his mission. We have a Savior who's not afraid about his reputation, who's willing to get in the depths of our sin to pull us out and to bring us to the Lord. Praise the Lord we have a Savior like that. Friends, I want to take a step back. We've been reading this story, but look back at this theme that I've been talking about in the context of the great controversy. We have a devil who is pursuing after us to steal, to kill, and destroy each one of us. But then you have a God. A God who, who sent his only son, who, by the way, who had it perfect in heaven, right? Who loves us so much to be scorned, to be beaten, to be shoved with a crown of thorns upon his head, to be nailed on a cross and to die for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And guess what? We are no longer friends, but Scripture says we are sons and daughters of the Most High. And Paul even goes on and talks about this. Yes, his love is so great. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Praise God. If Satan is pursuing after us to destroy us, he does it because he knows how much God loves us. Think about that for a second. If Satan is pursuing after us to destroy us, he does it because he knows how much God loves us. That is revenge. Friends, do you see a God who is pursuing after his creation? A God who dearly loves us? A God who who loves you and I? Jesus wanted us to understand this pursuing power. And he talks about it actually a couple chapters earlier in Luke 15. And I'm not going to read these stories. I do want to talk about them for a moment. But I invite you maybe this afternoon, sometime throughout this week, read these three stories all about the pursuing love of God. And I do, but I do want to actually read a couple verses here at the beginning. Because I want you to understand again, remind us who Jesus was mingling with as he told, why he told these stories. Verse 15, chapter 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Friends, I know, I know there could be some here who have felt at different times that you have been judged by other people. You've been judged by someone who considers them more spiritually than them. And maybe they said something like that, but maybe you just felt that. And, and it's been easy at different times to simply walk away from the whole thing because you have felt judged. But friends, I want to challenge you this. Do, do not dismiss Jesus because you have felt judged. Because guess what? Jesus wants to come and be with you. Yes, Jesus does challenge us to leave whatever sin we've done in our life. But guess what? He wants to be with you. He wants dearly to be with you. And so we see these stories. First one, the parable of the lost sheep. Each one of these parables has something to do with something that is lost. And this first one, the parable of the lost sheep. We have 100 sheep. One of the sheep wanders off. So we have the shepherd has the 99 here and realizes that the one is gone. And as the sheep wanders off not knowing, he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And he's searching for that one. He's looking. He looks everywhere until he finds that one. And what does he do when he finds that one? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he carries that back, that sheep back. He's celebrating. There's celebration that goes on. It's so incredible to think God is searching after each one of us. Now it's very common. It was very common and I believe in the Jewish understanding. That people were not loved by God until they came into repentance. You're standing away. God does not love you until you have repented. But this, this is quite the contrast. Because guess what? God has loved you the entire time. He's loved you. He's searching after you. Even whatever depths you've been, whatever sin you find yourself in, however separated you are, God has loved you the entire time. And he is searching after you. But this story... This story even has more than just, it's more to the story than just about the individual sinner here. Ellen White writes in Christ's Object Lessons, page 190. The rabbis understanding, <coughs> excuse me, the rabbis understood Christ's parable as applying to the publicans and sinners, to the tax collectors and sinners. But it also has a wider meaning. By the lost sheep, Christ represents not only the individual sinner, but the one world that is apostatized and has been ruined by sin. This world is but an atom in the vast dominions over which God presides. Yet this little fallen world, the one lost sheep, is more precious in his sight than there are the ninety and nine that went astray from the fold. Christ, the beloved commander in the heavenly courts, stooped from his high estate, 
laid aside the glory that he had with the Father in order to save the one lost world. For this, he left the sinless worlds on high, the ninety and the nine that loved him, and he came to this earth to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. God sent his only son, Jesus. Jesus made the decision to come to this earth because he loves us that much. Praise the Lord that he is pursuing after us. The next parable is a parable of a woman who has 10 coins. She has 10 coins and she loses one in the house. She's not really sure where it is and she begins looking, turning the house upside down, basically sweeping. You cannot see because there's not much light, lights a candle. It's looking until she finds that coin. And when she finds that coin, what is it? Celebration. She's so excited. If our Heavenly Father, which I believe is what is being illustrated, is searching for each one of us, He does not give up until He finds us. And there is celebration in this. The next parable is the parable of the lost son. Each three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, also we know this as the prodigal son. For those who are not familiar with this story, I briefly tell you, but there's a father who has two sons. The younger son is anxious and excited because he wants to go out in the world. He wants to go out and do what he wants to do. And he asks for his father's inheritance, his portion of his inheritance. I want to go out. And I'm sure it hurt his father's feelings. And, but his father agreed and he let him go. And he went out into the world and quickly squandered all his money. Spending on uh, frivolous living and all kinds of things. Had a bunch of friends for a while. But until his money ran out, he then realized his friends left him as well. So he needing a job, when there was a famine that hit the land, he, he goes and finds a job working for a farmer who had pigs. And he was taking care of the pigs and even longing to eat the food that the pigs ate. But then he thought for a second, man, even when I was with my father, my, my, the servants my father had, they live better lives than what I'm living now. So he builds up the courage, I need to go back, and he goes back. But it also tells us, too, that the father each day is waiting and looking, hoping that his son was going to return. When he makes the decision, all of a sudden the son comes into the gate of their plantation or whatever. He looks and he, the father sees his son. And he says the father runs down that path and embraces his son because his son has come home. And when they embrace each other, the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. No, no. And the father said, no. Oh, bring the coat. Bring the, the, the ring. Put it on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. You've come home. You've come home. It's exciting, right? Well, the older brother, though, who's been faithfully working the whole time, is like, what? I've been here the whole time, and yet he's been gone wasting money, and you're throwing a celebration for him? Well, there's a lot of stuff to talk about in this parable, one that can be preached on many times over and over. But the point I want us to think about from this parable is the pursuing love of God. Notice the posture of the Father. Okay, some critics will look at this and say, okay, the other ones, someone was searching after. Someone was searching. This is no searching by the Father on this one. But notice the posture of the Father, how he's standing there waiting and looking. And when his son comes through that gate, guess what he's doing? The Father is pursuing after his son. Yes, we do have to make a choice whether or not we're going to come to God. And when we talk about this pursuing, we must understand these things. Pursuing from God doesn't mean that he's going to drag us out against our free will. Pursuing from God doesn't mean he's going to rescue us from our, choice, our bad choices or the trouble that we've made in our life. We have to make that choice. We have to make that choice to come back to him because guess what? God has already made that choice to come after us. 
We have to make that choice to come after him because he has already made that choice to come after us. Friends, the pursuing love of God is so incredible. No matter where we are, what we found is he will always embrace us. Even if we made the big mistakes, we need to remember that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. And remember that God is for us. He's not against us. So this question I, 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 that you may be asking, I've been talking about, and we can see in Scripture clearly that God is pursuing after us. But what about us? Are we, are we, do we do anything pursuing, or how does this work? And I've kind of <coughs> wrestled with this, and I think we can see that even in the life of Zacchaeus. As we, we saw that something was happening in his heart. Something was going on in his mind that he, he wanted to, to fall after God. Christ, but he wasn't really sure he wanted to see him and so forth. And, and yes, there may be those moments in our life where we're thinking the same thing. Now, I did come across this passage that really caused some question for me concerning this. I didn't understand this. John 6, 44, which Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I, I, I struggled almost like this is like, do I need to be, wait, am I, am I being drawn? How does this work if, if no one can come to, to Jesus unless they're being drawn by the Father? And this is a, a, an interesting thing that Jesus is saying. And I came across a, a quote in the book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. His first page, he writes this. We pursue God because, and only because, he first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No one can come to me, said the Father, said the Lord, unless the Father who has sent me (coughs) draws him. And it is because this very previant drawing that God takes us from excuse me, that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our falling hard after him. And all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Thy right hand has upheld me. And this may be a little confusing to understand, but that first time we pursue God because, and only because, he first put that urge within us. Our desire to pursue God originates because God is pursuing after us. I think of Jeremiah 31.3, which tells us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with that kindness. But I like even, I think this even makes more sense when you read 2 Corinthians 5.14, which Paul says this, one of my favorite passages, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, Christ's love compels me. Christ's pursuing love for me compels me to pursue him. What Jesus has done for me compels me to now live for him. So friends, I will say this. If you feel that you want to pursue after Jesus, to make that next step for Jesus. Guess what? That originated because Jesus has already been pursuing after you. Praise the Lord for God who pursues after each one of us. So as we kind of near a close in here, I think there's a challenge, maybe something that we can think about as we 
think about God pursuing after us. Why does God pursue after us? Or, or what can we do about this? What I want you to think about. Number one, God pursues after us to draw us out of sin. He wants us to be in that right relationship. He wants us to journey with him through this life. Mark 2, it's basically the story of when Matthew was, was called by Christ. And again, Matthew was what? Matthew was a, a tax collector in a very similar situation. He calls him to follow him. He follows him. And Jesus then finds himself, we read, at his house. Jesus having another meal with a tax collector. And guess what people are doing? They're saying, why is Jesus eating with sinners? Why is he at tax collector's house? <laughs> and what did Jesus reply to them in Mark 2, 17? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus was in the depths of these sinners' lives. He wanted to be with them. He cared about them. He loved them. He was pursuing after them. Guess what? I saw this passage, and I was reading a, a little bit in the, in the chapter about Zacchaeus in Desire of Ages, and Ellen White says this, that Zacchaeus himself had heard that Jesus had called a disciple, called a tax collector to be a disciple, and felt like, if there is hope, if there is hope for other tax collectors, there's hope for me as well. That was spurring with the inside of him that he desired to follow after Jesus because, hey, if Jesus is going to call another tax collector, he'll also call me. Jesus is deep in the lives of sinners pursuing after each one of us. Henry Blackaby writes in the book Experiencing God, God created you for an intimate fellowship with him. A life spent walking closely with the Lord is both exciting and rewarding. Yes, it is. God does not want you to miss out on what he has intended for you from eternity. Sin causes us to follow our own selfish desires. So sin leads us the other way, right? In doing so, we reject God's best for our lives. So God takes the initiative to draw us to himself. God takes that initiative. So friends, indeed, indeed, there are some here today that, hey, I need to make things right. I, I need to, God is pursuing after, I need to make changes in my life. God does call us to leave those things behind. Go and leave your life of sin. So friends, if God is pursuing, of you, pursuing after you, I invite you to take that step. The second thing that I believe God could be teaching us through this idea of pursuing is that God pursues us to call us on greater mission. Call us on greater mission. We know Christ's mission to seek and save the lost, but he also called the disciples to go and make disciples, to go feed my sheep. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, he says. God wants to use you to bring glory and honor to his Father. God wants to use you to, to help you fulfill the purpose he created for you in your life. Now I know we've talked about this and sometimes we feel it's more comfortable just to stay in our seats, just stay just a part of the crowd. Like that's, I, I don't want to be involved because that's, but God is calling you. I love what Greg Ogden writes in his book, Transforming Discipleship, Making a Few Disciples at a Time. Page 67, he says, the very nature of a crowd is the ability to be lost in it. It costs nothing to be part of the masses. One can either be positively or negatively inclined. A member of a crowd, such as a worshiper in a congregation, can remain lost in a sea of faces, neither, ha neither having to commit or declare loyalty. Someone in a crowd can be anything from a curious observer to a skeptic or a bored pew sitter. But get this. Jesus ministered to the crowd in order to call people out of it. A person is not on the road to discipleship unless he or she comes out of the crowd to identify with Jesus. There are twin prerequisites for following Christ. 
cost, and commitment. Neither which can occur in the anonymity of the masses. Friends, Jesus ministered to the crowd in order to call people out of it. God is pursuing after you because he wants to use you to help fulfill the purpose that he has for you in your life. So indeed, there may be some here today that realize, hey, God is pursuing after me because, you know what? He's got a mission for my life. He's got plans for me, and no matter what age I find myself at, how old or how young, God has got plans for me. He's pursuing after each one of us. This past July, there was a story of Stratton Joshua Wright. He was a young boy from uh, Idaho. And he was with his uncle, his siblings, and his cousins in the northern part of um, Utah. They were in a national forest as they were looking, uh, hiking and through the forest or whatever. I don't know exactly what they're doing. Enjoying their time out in the national forest when all of a sudden they look back and Stratton was not with them. This nine-year-old boy separated from this, his cousins, his siblings, his uncle. And they began looking for him. Where is Stratton? And they didn't know where he was. Well, the sun was starting to go down. They went up to a peak and called the authorities to report that their child, their um, nephew, the, the uncle, the nephew was missing. And so, they began the search. They also called the father who was back home in Idaho. And father, the love for his son, I, I'm not going to stand by. He drives all the way to Utah to see what he can do. Gets there at three in the morning. Now, what's happening back with young uh, Joshua, or Stratton, excuse me, Joshua. Stratton, Joshua, right. What's happening with him? It said he at this point, as the sun started going down and, and he was looking around, he couldn't really find where anybody was. And so he said, I need to conserve my energy. I mean, this, this kid must have been trained well from his parents. But he, he, he sat down and said, I need rest. I need to conserve my energy. So he laid down about 9.45 or 10 and we went to sleep. Well, father arrives at the, the rallying point and the, the base where they were starting the search. And some, some of the professionals have already been looking. And, and he goes to the officer and says, Can, I need to go out. I want to go searching as well. And the, the officer Martinez, the one in charge of the search, says, well, we've got helicopters. They're going to start first thing in the morning. We've got, we've got dogs. We've got trained professionals. We've got GPS. We've got everything we need to find your son. He said, no, but I want to go. So, Father, at three in the morning, I guess maybe a little bit after that, he goes and starts his journey looking. Five-mile hike to where they were supposed to be camping. He's there looking around. The sun is starting to come up. Looking. Other people, they're starting the helicopters up. He starts going, calling out his son's name wherever he goes. Until finally, he hears a reply back. His son is out there in a field. His son, he found them. They ran and embraced each other. There were tears of excitement. They found each other. What are you doing in this field? He said, well, I thought. He said, if there were helicopters, this nine-year-old boy said this. If there was helicopters or anything else, being in an open space like this, this is the best chance of being found. They embraced each other. And I love what, what Mar, uh, Officer Martinez said. We have a father who shows up hours. This is what the officer said, who shows up hours later. And I guess that's a testament to the father-son bond because he was able to find them faster than we were as professionals. We had everything, helicopters, GPS, well-trained staff. But it was the father-son's bond, his love for him, that I really believe helped him find his son. 
Friends, this church is incredible. I will say it's an incredible group of people, of believers in Christ, and there are a lot of great professionals here in this community, a lot of great staff and pastoral staff, and a lot of great resources and, and a lot of things that can help people in their spiritual journey. Those things are helpful, but guess what it's going to ultimately be? It's going to be the Father that is going to find each one of us. It's going to be God searching after you when we realize that He's been searching after us this whole time. And so friends, wherever you have found yourself and wherever you are right now, if you're here in this place or worshiping online, know that God is pursuing after you. He loves you that much that he doesn't want to lose you. I love what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And what does it say? I will eat with him. Jesus wants to have dinner with you. He wants to have a meal with you. He wants to grow with you. He wants to have that relationship that's always been intended to be because he loves you that much. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've done, all that you do for us, and as we take a step back and look at this theme of you pursuing after us, in the, in the context of the great controversy, we see the love that you have for each one of us. So I pray, Lord, that you will lead each one of us. As you have been pursuing after us, we will be stirred inside of our, house, our hearts to pursue after you. Whether it's whether to leave sin behind or, or to get back in that right relationship or whether it's to, to something greater and deeper to say, Lord, I, I need to be a part of the mission and purpose that you have for my life. I pray that we will discover that you will reveal that to our hearts and lead and guide each one of us until you come again. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in your heavenly name.